Hello, welcome to the Bearded Tits podcast, hosted by me, Jack Perks. Professionally, I'm a wildlife cameraman, but I dabble in podcasting, and each Tuesday we release an episode as I have a chat with scientists, artists, filmmakers, and passionate people all about nature in a light-hearted and certainly not serious way. Hello and welcome to the Bearded Tits podcast. I'm your host, Jack Perks, and today we're covering the rather contentious issue of predation in angling. Strap yourselves in. I'm going to be speaking to the Angling Trust, Mark Owen, Head of Fisheries, and get the angling perspective. And I'm also going to be speaking to Dave Webb from the UK Wild Otter Trust. Now, I did want to try and get someone on to talk from the bird's perspective, if you like, but the RSPB politely declined, although they did send me some papers, which was very useful, and the BTO just didn't get back to me. So I'm going to be covering that side of things. To start with, some of you might be like, what is predation in angling? Isn't that a normal thing? What's the problem? The predation angling conflict, if you like, is that in recent years, there are more otters, more cormorants and goose handers specifically. There are other species, but we'll focus on those three today. And obviously they eat fish. Anglers quite like fish. So in certain areas, there can be a conflict of interest, shall we say. I don't expect everyone to know who I am. I suspect there'll be a fair few people tuning in for the first time for this one. So just to let you know where my hat lies, I am a wildlife photographer and cameraman by trade. I'm a naturalist. I love the outdoors and nature, whether it's bird watching, whether it's walking through woodlands, exploring fungi and insects. I love it all. But I'm also a very passionate angler. I love fly fishing for trout. I love trotting for chub and roach. I love fishing on the coast for whatever things turn up, dogfish normally. I'm a very passionate angler, which has led me to carve out a career largely filming fish, and that's what I'm predominantly known for. Now, the reason that I'm telling you this, and many of you already know this, is so that you know that I'm kind of neutral, that I, I'm, I'm just as invested in both sides. It's not like I've got a, a weight too heavy either side. So I'm going to try and present this in a relatively uh, open way that you can make your own mind up. And I'll, I'll let you know my thoughts at the end. might not be what you think either. But we'll delve into it. So to start with, let's talk about cormorants. Okay, let's start with the black death, as some anglers like to call them, cormorants. Now, I'm going to be referencing lots of papers here. I've had to trawl through some, if I'm perfectly honest, very boring and very long scientific papers to get the nuggets out for you, the listeners. So I hope you all appreciate this shite that I've had to read to get this far. Bearing in mind, I'm heavily, heavy, can't even fucking speak, heavily dyslexic and uh, it's absolutely boiling today as I'm recording this. But I've done it for you. Um, so I've got quite a few. I will put links to these papers in the description. So if you don't like what's being said, take it up with whoever wrote the paper. I don't want to hear it. One thing I will point out before we crack on is one of the big misconceptions over cormorants in the UK. So there's there's three points I want to make. Firstly, they are native. A lot of people say these are non-native, they're invasive. They're a native bird, albeit coastal, 
but they're still native. If puffins came inland, we wouldn't call them non-native. We would call that just migration more than anything. Cormorants are native. Secondly, cormorants have not come inland because there's no fish in the sea. This is something that my fellow anglers love to pedal. Oh, and there's a wanker on a motorbike outside. Um, my fellow anglers love to pedal the fact that cormorants have come inland because there's less fish in the sea. And the fact of the matter is this just simply isn't true. There is no evidence to suggest that cormorants are starving on the coast and that's why they've come inland. If anything, as evidenced by how efficient hunters cormorants are, they're the last bird that's going to struggle catching fish. So they haven't come inland because there is less fish on the coastline. What's happened is that the cormorants predominantly that we get inland are carbosinensis, and these are the Baltic cormorant. This is a subspecies of our coastal cormorants. Now these Baltic cormorants live on the Baltic Sea, and the Baltic Sea is a mixture of fresh and salt water. So you get this really unusual ecosystem where you get marine fish like cod, wrasse and flounder mixing with freshwater fish like perch, pike and roach. So those cormorants do eat freshwater fish and they do feed in fresh water. What the prevailing theory is that during the 1960s uh, there was a particularly harsh winter or a few harsh winters on continental Europe and as often happens when you have a harsh winter in Europe that pushes birds to the UK because being an island nation, we don't generally get as bad a winter as further inland in Europe. Now, those cormorants moved to the UK, and rather than leaving, they just stayed because everything was perfect for them. There was brilliant habitat, no predators, lovely place to stay. And that is where these inland cormorants have come from. We have actually found since that some of the coastal cormorants have moved inland as well, but that could just be that there are so many cormorants inland that's sort of drawing the coastal ones in. So you do see this sort of mix of cormorants, but predominantly it's Carbosinensis, the Baltic cormorant that we find inland. The, the last point is that you only get them in rural areas and they're definitely moving into towns and cities now. In fact, if you go to London, often along Regent's Canal, you'll see cormorants and certainly in, in the big parks there, and they're not bothered by people whatsoever. But obviously, you could say that of most wildlife in urban areas, they're generally more tame because they're used to human interaction. Let's look at some of these papers then and find out a little bit more about cormorants. Allegedly, cormorants are actually the most studied bird globally. So there is so much research out there, so it can be a little bit mind boggling. But let's get into the first bit. Now, this is population size because a lot of people are not entirely sure how many cormorants are here. So this is the Scottish Review from 2016. I do realise that this is nearly eight years out of date, but it's the most recent one that we have. Now, this covers cormorants, goosander and red-breasted meganza. Now, I'm mainly leaving red-breasted meganza out of today. This is simply because there's little evidence that they're a problem in England. They're actually quite a rare bird in England, and it's a big deal if one turns up. Uh, there is a, a suggestion there may be an impact in parts of Scotland, but for the most part, red-breasted megansers are not an issue in England and Wales. If you don't know what they are, they basically look like a goosander, but they're a little bit smaller, generally more of a coastal bird, but they will come inland as well. Now, the Scottish breeding population estimate is thought to be around 1,432 
uh, birds with a winter explosion of 6,241. The entire breeding population of Britain is 1,565. So you can see Scotland has the bulk of that with you know roughly 100 more in England and Wales. In the winter, that bolsters to 8,440. So there are a fair few megansers, but not in huge numbers. Let me get to the other two. Now, if we talk about goosander, they are mainly affecting upland rivers in the north and west of England, uh, many of which support migratory salmonids. So you do get goosander on lowland lakes in the winter, but they're only sticking around generally in upland areas. Certainly that's true for my local area. Don't really see goosanders in the summer, but we do get them in the winter. I'd have to go somewhere like the, the Peak District to go and see uh, goosanders. So the Scottish breeding population is thought to be uh, 1991, great year. Uh, and that the British breeding population is 3,455. So again, Scotland has most of them, but we still do get them spread out. The British winter population, that then skyrockets to 11,870. So we definitely get a big influx of goosanders from continental Europe in the winter. And Scotland solely, that's around 5,296. So around about half of those are going to uh, to Scotland. Now, um, I, I have to admit, I've got a soft spot for goosanders. They are a beautiful bird, but they're very effective in what they do. I've seen underwater footage of goosanders chasing salmon par. Uh, they're not eating as big a fish as cormorants, but they can certainly shovel down um, fish in the region of a pound would be no problem for a, for a goosander. Cormorants, what are we looking at for those? So for the Scottish breeding uh, population estimate, that's around 3,626 birds. If you go for the British population estimate, that goes up to 8,355 birds. Now that doesn't seem like that many to me, but bearing in mind, this is nearly eight years ago, so I would imagine that this is a little bit out of date now. The winter for cormorants though really does bolster. So the winter population goes up to 35,415. So the vast majority of cormorants in the UK are coming in the winter to feed. So winter is a crucial time uh, for fisheries to keep an eye out when cormorants are coming in because it's gonna be a lot more hungry mouths coming in the winter. Now looking at a DEFRA report, they state, damage caused by cormorants was generally considered to be problematic and an effect of a broader range of fishery types. Moreover, cormorants were concluded to have sublethal effects through wounding of fish, behavioural changes and loss of fish condition. It was also noted that this species presents a significant challenge in terms of attempting to quantify their use of sites due to their opportunistic foraging behaviour resulting in complex patterns of movements in response to changes in prey availability or management activities essentially saying that if they heavily batter one lake, they'll just move to another uh, and heavily batter that one. So they can have a, a huge effect and cover a large uh, area, particularly when you've got lots of cormorants fishing together. They mentioned fish damage there as well, which is definitely something cormorants do. They have a serrated bill, which almost, obviously birds don't have teeth, they've got a beak, but there are kind of almost barbs on it. So they'll grab fish, and once they've grabbed it, they very rarely uh, let go. 
But cormorants are not very good at judging size, so often they'll grab fish that are far too big for them to eat. I remember watching a cormorant at Boston on the river with them, and it went down and it caught a very large pike, tried to eat it, couldn't eat it, let it go. Damaged the side of that pike. Every angler will have seen fish with cormorant damage on it as well. Quite often those fish will go on to get infections, it will affect breeding success, and potentially kill the fish later down the line. Uh, that same cormorant that I saw in, on the Witham, it then went down and grabbed an eel, got it halfway down and wiggling out of its mouth, just couldn't get it down. So they're not the best judges of size when it comes to eating prey. But how much prey do they need per day? Well, the University of Hull also did a study and they concluded that cormorants are piscivorous birds with a daily food intake of approximately 500 grams. Now, depending who you work for, some angling websites say it's up to two pounds, a pound. The point is they can live on about 500 grams. So that's a fair amount of fish, but maybe not as much as you'd suspect. I'm not saying they can't eat more. I'm just saying that's what they roughly need to keep going. Now in the UK, the number of overwintering inland cormorants increased steadily between 1970 and 1987 at a rate of between five to 10% per annum an increase of 74% occurred between the winter of 1987-88 and 1990-91. So it might come as no surprise that there has been a steady increase in birds. So we know they've increased and we know how they got here through harsh winters in the 60s, but why are they increasing? Well, think about it. They've come to an area where there's no predators or very few predators. There's lots of food and perfect habitat. It doesn't take a rocket scientist to work out that this animal is going to do well. And you could argue that of any of the predators that we're talking about today. Now, a study by the BTO talks a little bit about the history of cormorants in the UK. So I'm going to read a bit of an extract. Great cormorants at Aberton Reservoir in Essex in 1981, the first inland breeding cormorant population in England. It's developed considerably through growth at Aberton and the establishment of new inland colonies. Up to 2005, cormorants have bred successfully in one or more years at 58 English sites that were not coastal cliffs or offshore islands, and so were defined as inland. Before 1981, the great cormorant in England rarely attempted to breed anywhere from coastal cliffs, stacks and offshore islands. This chapter charts the development of nesting at alternative sites termed inland, although a number are close to estuaries our open coastline. The first documented occurrence of inland tree nesting cormorants in England was in East Angular in the 1540s. From this time until the 1940s, inland breeding was reported from five sites, comprising of one in Suffolk, two in Norfolk, one in Kent, and one in Dorset, and one in Cumbria. Birds that had had their wings pinned were also known to have bred in St. James Park, London. At several of these sites, persecution by humans is thought to have halted breeding activity. On the near continent, where the breeding race is predominantly carbosinensis, population levels were kept low during the 19th and 20th centuries, and the distribution restricted, most likely through habitat loss and persecution. Throughout the 20th century, uh, there were between 1,000 and 1,200 pairs in the Netherlands, around about 1,000 pairs in Denmark, and fewer than 400 pairs in Germany. In addition, 
pesticide contamination during the 1950s and 60s is thought to have reduced breeding success, causing a further decline in the continental population. Persecution in other parts of Europe is also thought to have reduced breeding numbers. For example, France had fewer than 60 pairs at the turn of the 19th century. Whilst the inland breeding cormorant population in the UK, predominantly of the continental race, has grown considerably since 1981, our long-established coastal breeding population of the nominate carbo is believed to have remained relatively stable or to have declined in parts of its range. So I think that's an interesting point that the coastal cormorants, which should be here, haven't increased in numbers, but the inland ones have. And as we mentioned, habitat is good, uh, lots of food for them, but also they're not really being persecuted anymore, or not heavily, and there's no more uh, DDT, which is affecting the eggs. So that's another reason why cormorants are rising in numbers. DEFRA in 2013 also did a review, and it concluded that while cormorants may cause a problem to specific fisheries, they do not cause a general problem, and there was no proof that killing was more effective at reducing numbers of cormorants than simply scaring them away. More recently, in 2022, Natural Resource Wales undertook a review of fish-eating birds' impact on salmonids and ultimately approved an action plan to help protect fish populations from the impact of predation by fish-eating birds. NRW board approved the action plan after careful consideration of the recommendations uh, from the Fish Eating Birds Advisory Group, that was a mouthful, on how vulnerable fisheries and fish stocks can be protected from predation pressure while continuing to conserve fish eating birds. Acting on the advisory group's recommendations, here's the action plan. Explore the use of catchment baits licenses for better coordination in control of fish eating birds to help conserve vulnerable fish populations. Set thresholds for controls that ensure that long term conservation status of bird populations. Facilitate and deliver targeted measures to protect at risk and probably at risk stocks at periods when they're most vulnerable especially at known pinch points where smolts are most vulnerable. This will include measures such as improving river connectivity by removing barriers and improving downstream smolt migration, providing improved in-river habitat to provide cover for fish, and supporting non-lethal techniques to scare birds and protect. So before I finish on cormorants and move on to the next one, I'm just going to read one more study which was a tagging uh, exercise on continental Europe. So they tagged and released fish with a coded wire tags followed by intensive cormorant pellets followed by intensive cormorant pellet sampling. Basically they would tag uh, fish and then they go to these cormorant colonies and count how many tags they could find to try and get a rough estimate of, of how many fish these cormorants were eating. Sampling may be viable method to me measure the impact of cormorants on fish populations. To test this new method, the study uh, tagged cormorant predation in a shallow estuary, where nearly 100,000 fish were tagged and more than 10,000 cormorant pellets were collected over a three-year study period. A total of 112 tags were recovered from the collected pellets. Analysis of tag recovery data indicated considerable cormorant predation on tagged flounder, eel and salmon smolts. So not a huge return, but obviously the cormorants can shit anyway, so they're not necessarily going to get all the tags under there. But you would think if they tagged 100,000 fish, 
that you get a few more than 112 tags back. So that was a, a small but interesting study. Overall, what can you do if there are cormorants on your fishery or your fishing club? Well, you can shoot them. You have to apply for a license. You can't just go shooting them willy-nilly. Natural England grant a 3,000 bird license per year, but that's for the entirety of England. So that's not one club shooting 3,000 birds. I think it's something like four birds or so it's very low I, I i should probably have checked that for this so don't quote me on that but it, a, a fishery is not allowed to shoot that many it's pretty low i know one of the things that some groups were campaigning for was to move cormorants to a general license so they can be shot a little bit easier and more willy-nilly but as of yet you have to apply for a license to shoot cormorants however you can try lots of non-lethal methods and they are advised to be tried first first and foremost uh, human presence if it is a riverbank or a lake, having people there generally spooks cormorants off. They don't hang around too much. Um, obviously, cormorants get up early and they stay late, so it is quite intensive. And you can't have someone on the river or lake all the time, but lots of human presence generally spooks the cormorants off. I know people use scarecrows. They can work, but again, the cormorants will get used to them if you don't move them, change the outfits... Um, you have to kind of do a little bit of that. One thing that's being trialled is bird of prey scarers, fake bird of prey, uh, where people people use them to kind of scare pigeons and gulls off their homes, but it's being trialled on rivers, and actually that's become quite successful. My local fishing club, we actually have string uh, or rope across our course lake. Uh, we've got a small uh, kind of match lake, if you like, so full of small fish. What this means is that the cormorants can't fly in clearly or out. It's incredibly primitive, but it seems to do the job. I mean, this lake is right next to the Trent and right next to bigger lakes that do get cormorants. We very rarely get cormorants on the small lake. Scare tactics definitely seem to work if they're kept up. The cormorants will just realise it's too much hassle to fish there and move on. Although you could argue you're just shifting the problem elsewhere. I'm going to end on this article that was in Angling Times, written by my mate Dominic Garnett, who is a very good angler. And um, it's something that maybe anglers and, and wildlife fans can both agree on, perhaps. And that is uh, the reintroduction of sea eagles, white-tailed sea eagles. Because what they're finding in Germany and Scandinavia's Baltic Sea is that the sea eagles are decimating cormorant colonies. So let me just read an extract from this. This is also from Finland's Environment Institute. Across Germany and Scandinavia's Baltic Sea, in particular, eagle numbers are not only increasing but putting claw marks in cormorant colonies. And while with many birds migrating south every winter to the UK waters, that could be good news for Britain's fish stocks in the long run. The white-tailed sea eagle can eat both cormorant eggs and offspring, and they also steal fish caught by cormorants. In addition, the eagles scare adult cormorants from their nest, exposing eggs and offspring to predatory gulls and crows, said a representative from the Finnish authorities. Situations have been observed in both Finland and Germany where there are up to 30 white-tailed eagles in a great cormorant colony at a time. They continued, adding that the predation and harassment caused by the white-tailed eagle can sometimes be so severe that the colony does not produce any offspring in that summer. 
and that in at least one case, continuous predation has led to the end of a breeding colony of 2,000 nests. With so many of the cormorants at UK fisheries arriving as migrants from Northern Europe each winter, it's hoped that this could have a positive impact on the hardest hit venues and species like roach, bream and trout. In Finland, the cormorant population has not only stopped growing, but declined since 2015, suggesting the return of top-level predators could be a possible solution to one of angling's longest-running battles, not to mention less continuous than culls. Now, it should be noted that we do have sea eagles already in the UK, uh, particularly around Scotland, and it's interesting that there aren't as many cormorants in Scotland as there are in lowland England, although you could argue that's because we've got better habitat in lowland England. Sea eagles have just been reintroduced to the south coast on the Isle of Wight, and the hope is that they will breed and spread along our coastline. So it could very well be that sea eagles are the angler's dream in terms of naturally controlling cormorants. They hunt them at all times of the day, so you haven't got to get a purdy to scare them, and it costs less than a shotgun pellet. So I would definitely welcome white-tailed sea eagles to munch on a few cormorants. I think that would be wonderful to see natural predation on these animals. I've banged on enough about cormorants anyway. Let's move on to my first guest. This is Mark Owen, Head of Fisheries at the Angling Trust, and we talk a little bit about cormorants and otters and what anglers can do if they're affecting their fishery. Well, welcome to the podcast, Mark. Thanks, Jack. Uh, do you want to say who you are and who the Angling Trust are? Yeah, I'm Mark Owen. I'm Head of Fisheries at the Angling Trust. Um, the Angling Trust is a membership organisation um, for anglers, recreational anglers, whether that's sea, game or course. And uh, we're recognised by Sport England as the national governing body. So... Obviously, it's a very kind of uh, complex issue, predation, and it's not black and white. That's why I'm trying to get lots of different viewpoints on it, and I was very keen to get the Angling Trust on to talk about bits and bobs. So I think the first thing to start with is how does it affect the income of fisheries? Because it's, it's all easy, I guess, for people who don't realise that predation can have a financial impact on fishing clubs and fishery owners it, it does uh, and we see that uh, and one of the things that we do with the environment agency is give out grants to fisheries uh, to protect their fisheries okay um, and one of the evidence requirements that we look at before giving a grant is that income and the decrease in numbers um, it can make fishing clubs completely unviable uh, financially um, and uh, yeah uh, anglers will walk away uh, I mean um, it's just not it's not just a lack of fish during predation, but of course, a lot of fish will be heavily marked and scarred um, yes. from predation. Yeah. And um, it, 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 from a, an angler, a paying angler point of view who wants to fish, that, that isn't something that they're really looking for. No, want pristine fish ideally and not, yes. you know, scarred up fish yeah. from cormorants or, or whatnot. So what kind of, you mentioned grants there with the EA and yourself. So um, what would those grants be used for? Um, so um, we do, it's called the Angling Improvement Fund, it's funded by Rod Licence Income, so anglers are paying for this. And it, it is for um, uh, methods um, to decrease the impact of predation. So I've just actually yesterday finished scoring the last round, the latest round of this. Okay. Um, <laughs> a lot of applications and it varies from otter fencing. And that is um, your standard wire mesh fencing to, to keep otters out to where that's not possible, because it's not always possible, it can be electric fencing. Um, 
and also um, for uh, for cormorants and also for uh, for otters as well. Um, things like improving refuges within the water, yeah. so that fish can hide away um, and not be easily caught. And that can be floating islands um, um, planted up, which can be very nice looking. Um, to um, actually uh, making part of a lake. Um, um, as much as you can predator free by using like chestnut saplings in the water um, so that fish can get through and into a sanctuary but a predator can't follow. I'm with you. I think that's a really interesting point because if you've got a, should we just say a lake for example and there's nowhere for the fish to go uh, to hide from predators then it's open season isn't it for whatever's going to get in there and, and eat them so if you do add whether it's reed beds or the saplings that you mentioned or these fish refuges that at the very least is going to stagger that predation, isn't it? And hopefully they can bugger off somewhere else and, and you know, not, not hit one fishery too hard. That, that's right. Uh, yeah. I mean, overhanging branches uh, from yeah. trees and things like that that just make it difficult for a predator. I mean, a predator ask, ask, is really looking for an easy life. Yeah. Um, they don't really want to spend an awful lot of energy looking for, uh, for a prey. Um, so <clears throat> the more difficult you can make it, the, the, then the more likely that predator, whatever it is, um, will uh, try and find an easier meal somewhere else. It's interesting you say that because I was at uh, Attenborough Nature Reserve recently and they've got around the visitor centre, they've got like a, a cage. Um, I think it's to stop birds getting at the, the reed beds, but it's, it's, it probably wasn't there for fish originally. But all the small fi- uh, fish fry have gone in there, and, and it's interesting. You'll see like uh, grebes and other fish-eating birds around the edge, and they want to try and get in, but they can't. There'll just be masses of small roach and gudgeon because they know that's a safe place to uh, to get away, and at least gives them half a chance to, to spread a, out when they can. That's exactly that, Jack. <clears throat> yeah. Have you? I mean, because obviously, we're, I mean, we're at the um, at one of the offices for the Angling Trust today. And you're you based? Is it Staffordshire? Where, where are you? You're you're locally, aren't you? Uh, my, personally, yeah, uh, yeah, in South Derbyshire. So, um, have you noticed it locally? Like, do you think there's been an increase in predators on the Trent catch? I mean, one of the other hats that you wear, of course, is uh, Trent Rivers Trust as well, isn't it? So, do you think there's been an increase in cormorants and otters on the Trent catchment? I think. Um, I think if you go back in time, mm. uh, Jack, if you go back to, and it's quite marked, um, particularly uh, cormorant populations um, across its range, whether this is North America or Europe, what you'll see is the increase is very definitely correlated with the banning of DDT. Yeah. That's when you start seeing that increase in, in, in populations. <clears throat> um, so that affects... Cormorants, I know it affected otter breeding uh, success. It affects cormorants as yeah. well, did it? Yeah. Ah, okay, didn't know that. Yeah. So um, uh, that that was it was that ban, um, and look across the, the the range, not just individual countries. Mm. I'm, I'm a big believer in looking at natural range as opposed to just geographical yeah, boundaries. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. Uh, you you will see that. Yeah. Um, the um, so uh, I don't think you can put, take one place in in. Um, um, in, in the UK in isolation say has it increased there it's increased across the board yeah okay. um, I mean I was talking to a fisheries scientist <coughs> recently um, who you started work um, on the River Trent in the 70s um, and he saw otters regularly then right okay so <coughs> um, um, and you know we've seen from otter surveys um, and uh, what we see from cormorants is yes they're they're established up everywhere now I don't think there's any any you can point to any part of the United 
certainly England and Wales, yeah. uh, where otters haven't um, come back. And the thing about cormorants is different because we get the large numbers of cormorants coming over here in the winter. Mm. So they're migrating from um, breeding grounds in Europe, mostly the Baltic area. And then as it gets cold in, 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 in that area, they migrate and some move over here, some move down to Southern Europe, um, some move down to Southeast Europe. So uh, there's that migration that you have to pattern that you have to take into account with cormorants as well. So you're always going to get more in the winter, no matter regardless of what you've got in the, the uh, summer. As a as a, uh, a a generalized rule, what you'll yeah. find is that if you've got a very cold winter in Europe, we will get more cormorants coming here. Yeah. <laughs> if yeah. we have a very cold winter and Europe has a warm winter, we get less and more move in, into Europe. Right. Okay. That makes very much. Uh, that's a very yeah. Much yeah. A, no. Yeah. I know. Yeah. <clears throat> As a rule of thumb, sort of thing yeah. that that makes uh, that makes complete sense. The only reason I ask, I'm, I'm just trying to think because I mean, obviously, I grew up in Nottinghamshire, and I remember seeing cormorants, but I don't remember seeing as as many as I do now. But maybe I notice it more now. It's hard to you have to be so careful with anecdotal evidence, don't you? Because obviously, it's easy to go well when I was a lad and yeah, I saw that. So it, it is. Uh, I mean, the trend. Um, you also have to look at um, how they migrate and where mm. they might mi- migrate through. So yeah. from Europe, they will be using the Trent Gateway. Right. Uh, to move in and then spread out. So you get the Trent, the Thames, um, you've got you know, the, the other rivers. They'll mm-hmm. use those as, as migratory corridors, which yeah. makes sense for a, for a bird like cormorant. Yeah, because I, I think I'm right in saying, well, you mentioned it then, it's, it's carbosinensis, isn't it? It's that, that Baltic cormorant that they do eat a lot of coarse fish. It's not the marine. I think there are a few marine ones, but overwhelmingly it's this Baltic cormorant, isn't it? That Carbosinensis, as you said, um, is the one that's, that's really increased in numbers. Yeah. Carbo Carbo, which is the sort of coastal one that you're yeah. referring to. Yeah. Um, it, it starts getting complicated when you when you start trying to define the species because actually what we found now is the two have interbred. Oh right, okay. <laughs> so um, um, I'm not quite sure what we call the offspring scientifically. Yeah. <laughs> <Yeah>. um, Mongrels. <laughs> um, but yes, no, that they 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 are. Um, um, it's established now that, that they've crossbred. So. Right, okay. Because I know one of the long-standing myths among a lot of anglers is that cormorants come inland because there's no fish left in the sea when it's not really as far as I'm aware that's more of a myth or maybe I'm wrong I, I mean I can't I can't disprove that or prove that okay. the right. only thing that we, I will say that we have observed um, is that with the coastal birds if you get a big storm at sea it pushes them inland oh okay so uh, and that's quite quite um, that's been noticed by the angling community quite a lot in the fact right. they'll suddenly realise um, and that, that you know we're having a big storm out in the Channel or yeah. in the North Sea or whatever. Uh, we know that the coastal birds will move inland right. to get out to get out of that, and sometimes they will stay. Yeah, that, well, I guess if they think well, the food's good and the habitat's good, why should, why am I going back out? That's right. Out Cormorants there, eat so. fish. Well, yeah, they're not really perturbed whether it's a coastal fish or no, a, or, not. or a chub. They're <clears> definitely not um, not fussy. So, so what's the current law then on? Um, controlling them because, as far as I'm aware, there, there is a there's a limited license granted as that people can apply um, to so, control some. Uh, you can. <clears throat> um, so um, uh, the UK government applies uh, a dere- derogation of the Birds Directive, which we are still uh, subject to, right. um, to protect fisher- to protect um, fisheries, which is quite accepted um, yeah. across uh, across Europe. Uh, there are circumstances where damage. Uh, has to be controlled yeah and um, but you have to go through hoops to get that license so you have to prove that there is damage and it's significant damage is taking place yeah um, 
and you have to uh, do counts, uh, you apply through a, for a licence, um, we will help you do that um, uh, as much as we can and point you in the right direction as to what is required. Yeah. Um, and then your licence then, if naturally you can agree it, to, to um, control a certain uh, number of birds lethally. Because it, it's... Um I don't know if it changes year on year, but it's it's a set number each year. Is that right? Like, so, uh, so this was this was brought in actually by um, the last Labour government. Um, right. So um, uh, under the present policy, uh, it's not legislation; it's policy. Yeah. Um, in England, um, you can lethally control up to two thousand birds per annum, um, exceptionally up to three thousand. Right. That's. No, so I'm doing some quick maths. I think is it something like sixty thousand breeding? That's the UK. The UK, okay. So that's so two thousand is not a lot, is it? When you think no. about um, how many there are, and I, I know the subject of, of lethal control of any animal is often met with controversy and, and yep. advertisement, but um, arguably two thousand is presumably not doing a great deal of difference if you. It depends how, how it's used. So yeah. um, the government policy on this, um, you know, uh, and the Angley community uh, has a different view on, on when we talk about this. It's, mm. it's called shooting to kill to scare. Right. So the idea is that if five uh, cormorants um, fly into your fishery, uh, you don't shoot all five. You shoot one of them and that will deter the others from coming in and not come back to that fishery. Right, so they'll they'll learn. We don't want to go back there because <laughs> we're not going to fly out. That's why it's called yeah. shooting to kill to scare. <clears throat> right, okay, and and that's that works. Like that's that's been proven, has it? That you know, it it, it does work. Yeah. Um, what you tend to find, um, and what I didn't stress as well, is that before um, you take lethal control, you have to uh, obtain all possible non-lethal methods. Yeah. Uh, to deter yeah. The, to deter the birds. Um, yeah. from from coming in so uh, what we tend to find is it requires a a mix of methods cormorants are very intelligent they get very habituated to one particular technique so um i will quite often see you know fishers will say oh you know we walk around with a dog uh, the lake or down the river and we've always used that to deter the cormorants and all of a sudden it's not working well that's because they've got used to the fact that you and your dog aren't a threat to them yeah <clears throat> So it's a, it, it, it requires a mix, um, which is uh, very labour-intensive for the Anglican, particularly yeah. when we're talking largely volunteers here. It's very labour-intensive. And I guess as well, like, early starts, late starts, you know, cormorants don't work nine to five, do they? So if you're not out there first thing, they're just going to munch the fish when, you know... It, it is. It's it's first light and last light. Mm. Uh, and some of the techniques that we use for non-lethal deterrence require that. I mean, we use um, uh, lasers quite a lot. Um, Lasers? Mm. Okay, how's that work? So, um, and I will stress that um, you need to um, be properly trained on this. It's not something you just go into a shop and buy a laser <laughs> no. and use. No. Um, and we will, um, uh, our staff will go through this with you. Um, but And it is, uh, you, we use a green light because okay. that is, um, uh, what we found is that that is the one that disturbs the, the cormorant the, mo the most. Right. And this is about, putting the laser on the shoulder or the body so the cormorant can see it this this disturbs them this, this is a technique that is used in agriculture for geese for example right okay um, and for various others it means that you you're very specific you're not you're not making big bangs and disturbing or local the, people or local yeah, wildlife yeah, yeah. or anything it's very we, it can be done very very specifically so all you're doing is deterring the cormorant from doing it but 
Um, you have to do that first light or last light. <clears throat> it's it's not much good during the middle of the day because it's too much light. Yep. Yeah, I, I saw I, literally yesterday. I saw um, the Nest Salmon Fishery Board. I think someone up there they were using um, those fake birds of prey. You know, farmers sometimes use them where you can. Um, they're like a kite that, that fly. Yeah, we and use them. Yeah, and, and apparently that, that's quite a successful tool as well. So, as, um, as long as you mix it up, again, if you just use, try and rely on one deterrent on its own, yeah. the bird um, or whatever you're using to, you're wanting to scare off, yes. yeah, yeah, yeah. will get used to that and suddenly realise it's not a threat to them. <clears throat> so you just have to keep switching it up yeah. and then, as so as a last resort, that's when lethal control potentially comes in if, if nothing yeah. else is working and then... Yeah, and it, and it comes back to the fact that, you know, it's, it's fully recognised that, you know, fisheries have a commercial value, um, fish have a value, um, it is to protect fisheries the same as the derogation that's in the directives is there to protect agriculture. Yeah. Um, so it, it, it's the same thing. Um, well, I mean, I suppose you look at, say, um, salmon smolts, for example. Mm. I mean, salmon are in, in a, a crisis, arguably, in the UK, and there's a very, very real risk that we may, you know, even lose salmon, which is, which is terrible. So you think that all these small smolts coming down the river into the estuary, which off the top of my head, is like April, May time, that sort of yep. time it happens. So that's a, that would be a key time to protect the river. And even if a cormorant or goosander or whatever eats a dozen, that's still a dozen salmon that potentially... We are in that situation, unfortunately, now. Yeah, it's uh, something there. that we're working very closely on um, um, and with partners in the fact that we're, we're getting to a stage with the Atlantic salmon where you know, we might not have any left. It could be, certainly in my lifetime, I could we could well be having rivers that are extinct of salmon in this country. Yeah, it's um, dreadful. Uh, so when you get predation on a population that is fragile anyway and threatened with extension, mm. then the more predation that happens, even though in an ideal world it would be natural, yeah. the more predation you get on that, the more impact it's going to have at a population level. Yeah. And one of the problems that we have with our rivers is that we have frankly buggered them up such a lot <laughs> putting it lightly mark yeah <laughs> um, you know uh, we have weirs on them and all the rest of it so you mentioned smolts what we find is that smolts will actually not be very happy crossing that weir going downstream they will hold up stream until they're used to it mm. and that then becomes a honeypot yeah for predation yeah if the weir wasn't there we wouldn't have that problem so where man has made pinch points and has impacted on on uh um, on fish migration those are the points that we need to ensure they're protected I'm really glad you mentioned that because I think it's worth saying and I've, I'll repeat it constantly through this podcast that predation is an issue in my humble opinion it's not the issue but there are other issues that exaggerate predation so you mentioned barriers to migration which makes predation a bigger issue um, lack of habitat which makes predation a bigger issue and water quality which makes it a bigger issue uh, I think the thing with anglers, and, and I was talking to this with Dave Webb earlier, uh, predation's a motive because you see that, that fantastic barbel carcass or you see a, a, a cormorant eating a roach. You can imagine as an angler that's going to make your heart sink, whereas you might not see those small held up above the weir or all those other problems coming in. Uh, uh, yeah, that, that's right. Uh, <clears throat> I think um, government are starting to recognise that. Um, I worked with Welsh government on this last year. Um, and you know changes are coming um and i think we launched our salmon manifesto in january in the house of commons and the uh, fisheries minister was there and uh, we're having follow-up discussions um on that um it, it 
and we campaign um, hugely on pollution, whether it's agricultural pollution, water company pollution, you know, um, our uh, close um, uh, company we closely work with, Fish Legal, um, yeah, uh, regularly takes them, yeah. to, takes them to court and does a fantastic job. Uh, so it's a range of issues. Once you've got fish populations, any animal population, if you like, at a fragile state, then um, any external factors that may well be mitigated by large numbers then becomes an even more important factor. Yeah, no, I think you're completely right. And the work the Anglican Trust has been doing recently has been been fantastic. I mean, they're popping up all over the news. I see them on social media regularly and they're fighting really at the forefront for pollution. So I think, I think it's great what you guys are doing. But yeah, th- thanks for coming on, Mark. Thanks, Jack. Pleasure as always. That was Mark Owen from the Angling Trust. Some really interesting points there. Now, if you'd like to join the Angling Trust or find out more about them, you can visit their website or the link in the description. Now, let's take a look at otters. My next guest is Dave Webb from the UK Wild Otter Trust as we talk about otters, the conflict with anglers, and really get into the nitty-gritty of it. Here's our chat. So welcome to the podcast, Dave. Cheers, thank you very much, Jack. Appreciate you asking me. No, no problem. Shall we start with who you are then and who the Otter Trust are for people who don't know? Yeah, so my name is Dave Webb. Um, I'm the founder of the UK Wild Otter Trust. Um, we, as, a, or, as an organisation, um, do lots of work uh, with angling, you know, various angling outlets, fraternities, um, clubs, groups, lakes, waters, stuff like that. Um, we work with the Angling Trust and we obviously... Um, Part of our core work as well is the rehabilitation of orphaned or injured, sick otter cubs and adults, obviously. So, yeah, a variety of work. And that's, you're down in Devon, aren't you? That's right. Yeah, we are. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, we're in North Devon. Yeah. So let's um, let's start at the, begin- at the beginning with otters then. Why did otters uh, originally decline in the UK? Because obviously they've always been here and then there was mm-hmm. a sudden drop and then they've come back which is one of the big success stories <laughs> for, for a lot yeah. of people in UK wildlife but why did they originally decline um so originally it was um it was to do with the organic chlorines that were being pumped into the rivers pesticides and stuff like that the organic chlorines particularly were an issue because it was a thing in there called deldrin and that affected the reproductive systems particularly in the females um, so while the males were probably doing a dirty deed, the females actually weren't being able to be carry forward. So, so, so even though they potentially they were thought they were breeding, they they clearly weren't, and the the reproduction systems um, took a bit of a hammering for that, and then that obviously caused you know a decline of sorts. Um, luckily, it didn't make them completely extinct, but there was a concern at that time that obviously there was going to be a you know a major problem with the population. So that's obviously why. That was then banned, and then obviously they they just continued on as they you know, once they got over they just continued as they were, and, and the populations that we see today um, is a result of that very thing being banned. So is that the is that the same as DDT? Is that just the kind of abbreviation? Yeah, for yeah, okay. yeah, yes, it is. Yeah, that's yeah. that's the one that I've that I've heard of. Yeah, and it's interesting that you say there that they didn't completely go because I think this is where one of the misconceptions come that people talk about. Yeah. The reintroduction of otters but that's mm. not really the right term because no. they never completely went did they no that's right um it's a conversation i have many many times with many many anglers 
Um, and you know, if, if you go on the, the, the dreaded Facebook, you you very often come across groups. You know, well, they should never be reintroduced. They never have been reintroduced because they were never extinct. No, um, you know, it may be a case of just playing on words, but actually, they were never extinct. So it is not a reintroduction. Um, what the original offer trust did, and another misconception is that the, people get. Um, very confused with us being the UK World Otter Trust and the original Otter Trust, so we get blamed for the reintroduction or, or for the, you know, the the, the captive breeding program. When actually yeah. it's nothing to do with us; we're a completely separate organisation. Um, but yeah, people do get confused with that, and people think they were reintroduced and think they were extinct, but they weren't because they sort of hung on in the southwest a little bit, didn't they? In Wales, mm, Scotland. Yeah. I think so. We, I mean, I'm based in the Midlands, so I think we pretty much lost them, and I know the southeast pretty much lost them. But presumably, yeah. I mean, it, it's hard to find data on where releases have happened and haven't. But some mm. of that will be releases, I'm sure. But a lot of it was just recolonization of their own steam. Yeah, it, it was. Um, I mean, obviously, that you know, a lot of the information is quite sketchy. Um, yeah. Certainly, as you say, you know, the southwest, you know. Parts of Wales, particularly West Wales and Scotland, around the coasts, um, you know, they've they've always been a stronghold, and you know, the the releases I think from memory there's quite a few done around sort of the Thames catchment and Yorkshire area, and um, there is some data out there that, that can be found you know fairly easily on the internet, um, but yeah, there were certain areas that you know I think there was some around the Cotswolds as well. But those sort of areas, you know, but but pretty much I think what they did back then, you know, they, they, they did some surveys, you know, and that's sprint surveys. You know, I'm not a big fan of sprint surveys because it actually doesn't tell you anything other than an otter's been there. You know, it, it doesn't serve any pop to, to, you know, any use in population levels and stuff like that. Right. Um, and just because you don't find sprint doesn't mean an otter's not using that territory. It just means it actually isn't there and it hasn't, you know, had a poo there so yeah. it, it's all a very it's all it's all a little bit sketchy but no you're actually what we say you know there were some areas that had some put back into that they thought there was none or very low and yes there's been strong odes around in various parts of the country so when when you say that you're doing releases that's that's when it's uh like animals that have been taken in from the wild already it's not captive breeding is it it's more like if, a, if an no, no, you injured no. or whatnot you're re yeah. rehabilitating yeah. it yeah, but it's not a breeding program. It's a rehabilitation program. So it's it's two very very different things. As I say, we we will take cubs, you know, that are very small. You know, we've, the smallest we've had is something like 400, 450 grams in weight, um, and we've taken otters that are six seven kilos in weight. So they they the younger ones obviously need a full year's worth of or more of rehabilitation to get them through the process because of the time they spend with the mother, which is a very long time. And the older ones that come in may only need a week, two weeks, a bit of TLC, just to see what they're doing, monitor them, make sure they're fit for use, check them, and then get them out. Yeah. So what do you release them back where you uh, where you find them? Or like, I guess it makes most sense to put them where you got them from, I would imagine. Um, well, yeah, um, more often, yes. Yeah. Um, I mean, most of the time, you know, most of the time, you know, they will go back as, as close as possible. Sometimes logistically, and for various reasons, such as you know, it might not be safe. For example, you know, if you find one in in a city centre, yeah, you know, yeah. you know, it, it's not logical to put it back there, obviously, for no, obvious reasons. No, 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 no. 
Um, so yeah, we 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 choose to release sites very carefully, and because of the way the otter's behaviour has evolved over the years, obviously the rehab side of things have changed drastically. Um, so we we gear our releases around each otter's need. So if you know if we have you know, quite often we'll pair them up. They come in singly, but if we pair them up because they, it's better for them because because more confidence, easier for us. Um, and sometimes we'll put three together, so we will be guided by their behaviour because they'll, they'll all gel to each other because they possibly had siblings before they were split up. So we will then gear that behaviour towards specific release sites. Everything we do is geared you know, geared towards the best for the otters. Yeah. And what's the the diet made up of? Because I guess most people just assume fish, but they they eat other things. They do, yeah. I mean, the, the, the primarily the diet is probably 80 percent fish based. So it can be a variety of fish. Um, but they will take obviously eggs, small mammals, birds. Yeah, yeah, they, they, you know, crayfish, which is a good thing. They, I, I've known them eat um, fruit. So you know, they they have an extremely varied prey. I didn't know, I didn't know they were om omnivorous. So they'll they'll actually take fruit, will they? Yeah, they have. Yeah, we 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 um you know quite sometimes we'll we'll include some fruit, apples, um, melon, stuff like that in the diet of the ones we have here. Primarily, we feed them trout and dayo chicks, but sometimes we'll give them you know some sort of fiber of some sort, carrots, yeah. thing like that sort of thing. Um, don't get it every day, but you know they do yeah. get it. Yeah, that's interesting. I suppose it's not massive surprise, I guess, is it with other mustelids are yeah. omnivorous, aren't they? So it's not a yeah shock, I guess. Um, so when when you, I mean, I guess because you must get the brunt of a lot of kind of criticism from from certain anglers. So where do you think the conflict comes in when it's people seeing otters take fish? Like what, what's what's the issue in your eyes, or if or, or maybe no issue? Like what, what do you think is the, the take on it? But yeah, I, I, yes, I, yeah, we do get a lot of flack from anglers. Um, Ninety-five percent of the anglers are good guys. You yeah. will always get a minority that won't believe a word you say. Um, some I could say, actually, otters will eat your fish, and they'll say otters don't eat fish, but because I said it, or because the organisation said it, and it, yeah. that has okay. actually, that has actually happened. Um, and it. It's no good, you know, I get the frustration, believe me, we do. I'm I'm an angler, I've been an angler all my life, it's just I've ended up running a rehab centre and an offer trust. Um, so I get the frustration, but killing them, culling and trying to cull them, doing things illegal isn't the way forward. You know, they're saying they're eating everything, otters will never, ever void a specific area Everything is in there. I eat fish or river. People say to me, "Well, they've eaten every fish in the river." They won't. It's a bit like you and me, you know, eating all the food we've got in our fridge in one binge hit, not having anything. We're not going to do that. Um, so, the way forward, you know, rivers, very, very difficult. You cannot fence rivers. It's extremely difficult. It's extremely difficult to stop predation on rivers. Having said that, the river, the riparian habitats are the natural habitats for that species. And the problem comes more so when they leave the rivers, so when they're in flood or for whatever reason they, they move, building, habitat loss, it's all, it's all they are doing. These animals get pushed out. They get they move it you know inland, they come across garden ponds that are, you know, um unprotected. They come across fisheries that are unprotected. And they go in and they make a feast. 
and particularly when they got young, the female will take a, a, a cub or a couple of cubs to a lake because it's easy to teach them to hunt in a lake than it is into a, into a river fast flowing or even slow river environment. It's a lot, lot easier. Um, but the, you know, the only way forward to get rid of that frustration is talk to people and try and get an understanding of the otter's behaviour. There's a lot of people out there that don't understand the behaviour of the otter, why it's doing what it's doing and how it's doing it. And they want to get rid of it immediately and it's not the answer. Um, yeah, they need to spend time listening to people to, to get that information. Simple as that. And that's some, I mean, you mentioned at the beginning, you've been working with the Angling Trust. So you're more than happy to kind of advise fisheries and uh, fishing clubs and whatnot. They can get in touch and see if this all the time. We've done it a lot. We, we, yeah, this, this forms a massive part of what we do. Um, you know, we, we've, we try and visit as many fisheries as you know, logistically possible. We will speak to everybody. We will answer the calls. Um, we will help with fencing. We'll advise on fencing. We'll put them in touch with the Angling Trust who give grants via the Environment Agency. And um, I think that's about 150000 a year at the moment, which is not a lot of money in the bigger scale of things, but it's better than nothing. Yeah. So people can get grants, I think, to about 5K to help them fence. And they don't need to spend tens and tens of thousands of pounds for an offer fence, you know. Um, this can be done a lot cheaper. And we, we we will always help people and advise people, you know, the, the simplest, the easiest, the cheapest way to do it, but hopefully an effective way. It's all about the effectiveness of what they're putting up as opposed to the cost of it. Because because you pay 60 grand for a fence doesn't mean to say it's going to keep an otter out. No. <laughs> you know, a 10 grand fence would have the same effect. So why spend 60 when you could do it for 10? Um, so is that just, just trying to raise that awareness and stuff like that? Um, obviously, we have... Um, you've got have a license from Natural England to to humanely trap problematic otter that happens to be inside the fence because obviously once it gets inside, if it can't get out, the fishery owners didn't before we got that license have any legal humane option to remove it. No, they have. They can call us. We can go out. We can assess it. We can trap it. We can get it out, albeit it's released to the immediate outside perimeter of the fence because you can't trap it, put it in a car and drive it 20 miles because you're, you're disrupting the territories. And we don't charge for that at all. We've, we've, we've deployed traps. Probably we've had three, two, two and a half, three thousand calls since we've got the license. Um, and we've only ever had to deploy nine traps live set and we've caught seven otters. The other two we got out by other means. So it's effective. We don't charge a penny, no matter where it's to in the country. We don't charge for doing that because we want to help. We want to have an input in helping those fisheries to be successful. What what controls otter numbers naturally then? I mean, obviously, I, I hear I see a lot of things online about, well, there's nothing to eat otters. But I mean, I, as far as I'm aware, there's not a lot that would eat otters anyway. So what would control yeah. the numbers for otters when they're, when they're at a point where they're kind of peak numbers, if you like? Um, well, they've got no natural predators. Um, and it's I don't believe for a minute at the moment they're not, you know, there isn't a balance. Balance hasn't been reached and <clears throat> between you know, prey, predators, you know, predator, prey. Um, and until that does happen, once that, once that happens, then those numbers will naturally level off. Yeah. And it will get to a point where everything is sustained and everything goes fine. Yet, yes, in the meantime, things will get predated. But they're an apex predator. It's what they do. It's nature. Sadly, 
And if you're investing thousands and thousands of pounds into a fishery, you know, a still water fishery, for example, you have to make, you know, fencing and protecting that asset as you know, a, a priority as part of the business plan, rather than seeing it as an expensive option that, that you don't think you should have to do. Yeah. No, it's because I guess uh, with a lake, I mean, <coughs> nothing simple in life, is it? But if you have a lake, you no, get a fence no. up. <laughs> you get you get a fence yeah. up, and for the most part, that's a pretty effective way of keeping them out. But if you run a river yeah. fishery, or, or or you know, just a river, that's a different story, mm-hmm. and it's a lot trickier because, as you say, arguably the otters, yeah. you know, that's where they live. You can't keep them out the river, can you? No. No, you can't. It's a problem. The, the rivers are a problem. It, it, it's, you know, there is very little that you can do um, to persuade them from that. You know, it is their natural habitat, sadly. You know, the only people that we're able to help at the moment because, you know, because of the nature of the beast is still fisheries, sadly. Yeah. We wish we could help people with rivers. But, you know, the bottom line is the authors have a territory, can have a territory up to 20 miles. That's a big area. You know, sadly, things can get predated. Yeah, because I do, I do feel for some of them when it's a livelihood mm. that they're depending on. And, you know, as you say, predators, they got to eat, but it can affect people's jobs in that way. I mean, my yeah, my thoughts are... Predation is, is such a thorny issue, which is one of the reasons why I've avoided it for so many yeah. years. But my my, yeah. <laughs> my my thoughts on it are that it's... It is a it is a problem. I think it should be ignored, but I feel like it's a symptom of bigger problems like habitat degradation, pollution, and barriers to migration with fish. Mm. And then yeah. predation adds to those weights already. Whereas if we sorted out pollution on rivers, if we had yeah. free rain on yeah. migration of fish and more habitat, mm-hmm. you wouldn't feel the pinch as much with things eating them. You wouldn't know. You're absolutely spot on. Yeah, you know, it's a conversation. You know, again, I have this conversation. You know, people, some of the very anti-otter groups out there, and there are they do exist. You know, so you know, you've got to get rid of the otters. You've got to get rid of the otters. Well, actually, the otters can you know taking into account everything you've just mentioned are far more of a risk than the otters are. The otters coming along, you've got all these issues that you've just mentioned. You know, there was this uh, a agricultural runoff you know, less than ten miles from me. In, in one of the rivers down here um, a couple of few years back now, not that long ago. And you know, he, yes, he did get fined heavily, but that's not a lot of good when the runoffs killed probably 30,000 fish. Yeah. <laughs> you know, finding them 100,000 quid or whatever it was they got fined doesn't touch it, doesn't scratch the surface. And money can never repair that damage. And the problem is when that happens, and again, habitat loss, you know, everybody now wants to building infrastructure. People want to live next to rivers. Builders want to build next to rivers. It all has a knock-on effect. It's pushing the otters out. They're not going to stay around in the middle of a housing estate, even if, you know, if that's where their halt is. They're going to move out. They're going to move out. They're going to move closer to fisheries. And then, of course, from, from their guys' perspective on the rivers, you've got all these issues, and then suddenly an otter comes along, and that's the icing on the cake. Yeah. But Sadly, they spend a lot of time worrying about the otter instead of trying to sort out all the issues below the otter, below that apex predator that's actually causing the apex predator to to, to be the icing on the cake, if that makes sense. No, it does. I, I think what it's often a case of is that you can see the the the, the damage, I'll inverted commas that, mm. that an otter does because you might find a barbel on the bank with its throat ripped out. 
And as an angler, yeah. that's motive. You see that and you think, oh my God, that was a beautiful double figure barbel and an otter's mm -hmm. had that. And that's that's upsetting. Whereas mm. the things that I mentioned, like pollution, habitat degradation, barriers to migration, they're a death by a thousand cuts. They take a long time to kill fish and to uh, lower fish numbers. So you don't mm -hmm. get as angry about that because it takes longer to be an issue. Yeah. A predator, you can physically watch that predator eat a fish. So you've seen that fish go mm -hmm. before your eyes. So I understand why people get annoyed with it because you're seeing it happen. But it's there's bigger problems, I would say. And if, if half the people who complain yeah. about predation put that put that energy into campaigning yeah. against sewage or whatever, which mm -hmm. which anglers are give give them the credit. There are more anglers talking. Yeah, they are starting. Them. Yeah, I think we get a lot more done. We would, yeah. I mean, yeah, yeah I, th I think sometimes you can spend too much time worrying about the, you know, not the sole cause. Um, you know, we, we get lots of pictures through, in particular about barbel, um, and I know it's an emotive subject with barbel anglers and, and with carp anglers. Very often, people don't actually see the offer kill the fish. Now, I'm not saying they don't kill them. Of course they do. Hmm. but they don't kill everyone that you find. Some of that could be scavenging. If they come along and they find a dead barbel on the bank for oxygen loss, whatever reason it's dead, yeah, they're going to scavenge it, and they'll still eat it the same way. They'll still leave those telltale signs in the throat area. Just because it's dead doesn't mean, say, they're going to eat differently because that's where all the the, the, the nutritious protein parts are. It's, that's that's how they do it. That's how they, they eat so a lot of the time, you know, there there isn't a huge amount of evidence to say that the otter has killed that fish. Yeah. Although I totally accept and understand that sometimes that is the case. Of course it is. Um, and something like the barbel, for example, which which you know the barbel anglers can sometimes be quite emotive about it. Actually, if you look back over the historic records over the past sort of three, four, five, six years, every single year, the barbel weight record gets broken. On a regular basis, yeah. Well, they're they're saying, saying that you know their take is the otters have killed all the big fish. They're taking all the big fish, but but they're still going. You know these people are still going fishing for these this species, this particular species, and every year the record gets broken. So clearly, what they're saying is not a hundred percent right. Yes, I get there's a degree of truth in everything they say. But if if they wiped everything out like they say they do, and you know completely just you know made a complete mess of every single river barbel river this wouldn't be happening you wouldn't be seeing records broken you wouldn't be seeing those big fish being caught i think a lot of the fish particularly barbel learn when they're smaller they 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 grow up with otters around with that predator particularly that one particular predator yeah and i think they learn over a period of time to actually think oh shit there's one coming let's go and i think they learn to live with them and that's why i think they survive and why they end up breaking those records yeah i, I think it's um, it's an interesting because I I live on the Trent, which is probably the mm. best barbel river in the UK. Yeah, and we do get otters on the Trent as well. And I think the yeah. reason that barbel and otters coexist fairly well on the Trent is the Trent's mm. a big river. It's a big deep river, mm -hmm. so big yeah. barbel can get away from otters pretty happily yeah. on the Trent. The smaller mm -hmm. rivers, I mean, let's say historically, like the Wensum in Norfolk, for example, that was yeah yeah. That was a big barbel river. Mm -hmm. It's harder for, say, a 15-pound barbel. It's not got that much room to get out of the way no, yeah, away sure. from a predator. So I think mm -hmm. historically where there were big barbel in smaller rivers, the, the average weight size 
likely i don't have i don't have the uh, the numbers in front of me so i'm, I'm just yeah. sort of speaking from sense here but the average yeah. numbers of big fish on small rivers i would think has probably gone down that's not to say they've all, all mm. the fish gone no bigger no. fish have probably gone from small yeah. rivers. yeah but when you look at the seven the thames the trent those big rivers um the barbel is still doing pretty well on there and and coexisting with otters because there's room to get away mm. like you say either the fish yeah. gets out of the way of the otter or it gets eaten it's simple really so yeah yeah they got to they got to do it um well i'll leave you with one last question before before we finish up which is um mm -hmm. do you think that anglers and otters uh, can can coexist can I sing kumbaya by the fireplace maybe <laughs> um yeah I, th I think they already are as yeah. i said before yes you yeah, know, yeah that's a good way of are, are absolutely you know, they're, they're the custodians of the river they see everything that's going on yeah. you know and and i i could probably name you know name on a hand, one hand the number of people that, that don't enjoy seeing an otter on a river. Mm. I get so many calls from from you know anglers saying, you know, I've sat there fishing, you know, I caught this fish and I didn't catch bugger all and I saw an otter. That made the day. Um you know, most people are accepting of them. I think they are they are already coexisting with each other. And yes, there's always going to be a minority that will never want to coexist, you know, with it with anything, no matter what if it eats a fish, they're not going to want to coexist with it. So it's not just about otters, it's about all sorts. No. Um, so yeah, I, th I think they will. I think they do, and I think as things you know, as as awareness grows about both about fishing and about you know otters predators, yes, I think that coexistence will can can only improve. Yeah, I think that makes sense. If people want to find out more about um the the trust, what where's the best place to go? <laughs> uh, probably the website um which is www.ukwildottertrust.org. Um, there's lots of information on there. There's information on there about fencing as well for fisheries. So there is a fishery section on there. So there's a bit on there that, that can help. There's a bit about garden pond predation. And then there's bits on there, obviously, about us and about rehab and what we do. And um, we try and be open and transparent in what we do. Um, most of it is on the website. So ping over and have a look. Fabulous. I'll put a link to it in the description. But thanks for coming on, all Dave. Right. That's all right. No worries, Jack. Thanks very much indeed. That was Dave Webb from the UK Wild Otter Trust. Now, I just want to add on one more study about otters before we wrap this up. Now, the University of Cardiff did a study from 1994 to 2010 where they examined 610 otters' stomach contents. So, essentially, they get brought roadkill otters or otters that have been found dead. And what they wanted to establish was what exactly they're eating and try and get into the, uh, the bottom of it. So, 610 otters, what did they find? Well, on this particular study, 70% of the diet was fish, which is not a particular surprise. 14% was amphibians, so amphibians make up a pretty uh, good proportion as well. The remaining uh, percentages were insect, mammal, bird and crustaceans, although not very common. What the study uh, was finding, though, is that of those fish where eels were uh, abundant, they would make up the majority of the food which is really interesting because i've heard anecdotally this is one of those things again people sort of pout around that otters like to eat eels they specialize in eels and because of the decline in eels as i'm sure if you don't already know eels have declined by 95 percent around that figure it seems to change depending who you ask uh, over the last 50 60 years so if you think about eels would have been incredibly common that's a big food source and if otters were mainly focusing on eels they wouldn't have been touching other fish species uh, quite as much. So you cater away the eels, 
what are the otters going to eat? So it's an interesting thing. I don't know how if there's been any studies into it. I think it would be good to kind of uh, peel that open a little bit more because there are rivers that still have uh, a relatively good number of eels. So whether they do make up the large proportion of, of otters everywhere, I don't know. But it's an interesting thing to point out. Um, the other thing that it said is that otters had then gone on to eating things like bullheads and sticklebacks, which had increased, but it was unlikely to compensate for the loss of eels. So they were eating more small fish um, to kind of try and compensate for the eels, but it wasn't quite filling the gap. So the nitty gritty of that study was that yes, otters do eat some fish species that are of interest to anglers. However, the predominant prey are smaller fish, such as stickleback and bullhead, which are not particularly valued by anglers. So I thought that was an interesting one. Um, now again, you can't say that for the entire country, but if you think that that study had gone on for um, well over 20, well, hang on, yeah, ne nearly 20 years uh, with 600 odd otters, it gives you a good idea, doesn't it? Well, we're coming to the end of this podcast. It's actually the first podcast I've done that's over an hour. I always try and make sure they're under an hour, but this is such a complex, thorny issue that I thought this is probably deserving of over the hour mark. So to summarise otters, if you've got a stillwater fishery, get an otter fence. If you think there's a risk of otters, get an otter fence. They look horrible, I know they do, they're ugly, and they stop other mammals coming in and whatnot, but they work. Uh, my local fishery has um, does have an otter fence, and actually it's meant that ground nesting birds have done really, really well because it doesn't only keep otters out, it keeps things like foxes and badgers. So it has turned into like a mini wildlife oasis. Interestingly, oyster catchers, which not something I associate with Nottinghamshire, do really well inside of the otter fence. When it comes to a river, I'm afraid it's a case we've got to learn to live with them. Otters have always been on our rivers. They should be on our rivers. Who are we to say that they shouldn't be there? I think it's a case of we might have to adapt our angling or, as we've mentioned previously, um, address the bigger issue in or the bigger issue the elephant in the room which is barriers to migration pollution and uh, water quality i think if they're solved then predation should be less of an issue in terms of cormorants it's a little bit harder because you can't keep them out as easily again i'm using my local fishing club as an example on one of our lakes we've actually got string uh, or rope across the lake it looks really really simple but it does work. It seems to stop cormorants flying in. So there are ways to do it. There are, as we talked previously, there are multitudes of uh, humane ways to keep cormorants away. But I think what Mark Owen from the Angling Trust mentioned earlier, the shoot to kill to scare, I think I got that right. I'd never really considered that. And you know what? I'm not sure I'd be totally against that. Now, let me not mince my words. I'm not saying I'm calling for a widespread cull of cormorants. I'm just saying that if you've tried all of the humane ways um, to get rid of them and it's not working and you've got someone's livelihood at risk or arguably something more important like salmon or another rare fish maybe that's the way to go i don't know the rspb routinely 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 uh, call things like foxes and corvids on their nature reserve so uh, i'm not totally against calls i think as long as the science is there to back it and uh, it is proven to be a problem so Potentially, that's a thing. Anyway, I hope you've enjoyed this. Hopefully, I don't get too much hate mail. Uh, feel free to send it, and I'll promptly chuck it in the recycle bin. This has been the Bearded Tits Podcast. I've been your host, Jack Perks. Oh, actually, before I go, I should just say, the podcast is back 
in November. I've already recorded seven or eight podcasts. I've done lots outside. We've got some amazing guests turning up. So do bear with me. I dare say there will be another bonus podcast before November. Um, It's absolutely boiling as I'm recording this in my office today. Uh, If you're not following us, do follow me on Twitter at Jack Perks Photo, Facebook, Jack Perks Wildlife Media, and on YouTube, Jack Perks Wildlife Media as well. Uh, I should also mention buy me a coffee. I don't know if anyone will want to particularly send me money after this one, but if you are wanting to support the podcast, it's the only way that I make money uh, from the show. So if you can send whatever you can afford, uh, there's a link in the description to buymeacoffee.com. Anyway, this has been the Bearded Tits Podcast. I will sign off now. I'm your host, Jack Perks, and I'll see you next Tuesday. Cheers.